was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are studied various. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, Series 4, Episode 2. Thanks for joining us here in the Cubbyhole, the podcast where we discuss everyone's favourite licensed troubleshooter, James Bond, 007. If you're new to the Cubbyhole, then do check out our previous episodes. And while you're there, we'd be more grateful than Whisper being handed a megaphone uh, if you gave us a quick review on whichever podcast platform you're using. More important than ever, considering the interactive nature of Series 4, uh, you can contact us via the usual social media channels. Do let us know how good or bad our ideas are for Bond 26. Search more Cubby on any of the, the social medias and you should be able to find us. Uh, or you can email us uh, morecubby at gmail.com. Let's introduce my co-hosts. Firstly, he's a man who's still presumably eyeing up those ties and cravats from Roger Moore's Bonhams auction. Uh, it's Adam. How are you, Adam? What's your What's your highest bid on those ties and cravats? Uh, hi, uh, what's my highest bid? I think they only had an estimate of about 500 quid. So I'll I'll just probably cut them under at about 350, something like that. Uh, I'm very good. I've just been because Christopher Nolan's kind of in the air a bit at the moment. So I've kind of been going back over his back catalogue. And I've just remembered something which I sort of knew at the time, but then weirdly was reminded of, which is that The Dark Knight Rises is the same film as The World Is Not Enough. So, all right, you've got an ageing hero who is sporting a major bodily injury, who has to defeat a bold terrorist who can't feel pain, who's going to set off a nuclear bomb in the middle of a major city. But he's secretly working for a female main villain whose dad was inadvertently killed by the hero. It's the same film. I mean, we know Nolan sort of, you know, takes a lot of inspiration from Bond, but that's an absolute ripoff. Yeah, but it doesn't have gold in it, does it? I think the absence of Goldie makes it a better film, arguably. Well, I was about to say, it probably also benefits from not having Christmas Jones in it as well. That, that's also a plus for The Dark Knight Rises. And secondly, he's the only man on the show who'd prefer to be Agent 001, because as everyone knows, that is the best agent in MI6. It's Phil. How's it going, Phil? Yes, I'm very well. Thanks, Martin. Um, yes, I, I agree. I, I think I'd probably be a, a very good Agent 001, principally because of the fact I'd either be completely inept as a member of MI6 or I'd just get killed in the first 10 minutes. But this week we've got um, a little bit of a special landmark, really, for our um, Twitter slash X slash whatever Elon Musk will call it this week. Um, and that's that this tiny uh, pokey podcast that started between three school friends has now achieved 2,000 followers on Twitter slash X slash whatever Elon Musk will call it this week. Um, so thank you so much to everybody that's been in touch with the show in the last, uh, what is it, four years coming up that continues to to engage with us. Um, and, you know, for all your continued support, we, we you know, we couldn't do it without, without your fan theories and your um, interactions with us. Yes, thank you very much to all of those on X. Twitter, whatever it's called. Is, is this cage match happening between Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah, I think Musk wasn't uh, wasn't playing ball, apparently. I think Zuckerberg was ready, but uh, Musk was making his excuses. 
I kind of regret supporting Musk in previous episodes of this podcast. <laughs> well, but I mean, any match between him and Zuckerberg is, you, you know, like when Tyson Fury beats people up because he's basically just like huge and flabby. So no punch lands them with any impact. And then he's up against, because Zuckerberg is properly hench because I think he does a load of judo and stuff. Elon Musk with his top off is ridiculous, but that's how Tyson Fury wins because he's basically just a big fat man who no one can hurt because he's so well cushioned. We're going to have to hope that Tyson Fury doesn't listen to the podcast, aren't we, Adam? Or that Fab is going to be going in your direction. My wife watched the At Home with the Furies, you know, the Netflix thing, and apparently just some random dude on Morecambe Bay Beach just says, oh, Joshua'd still have you. Didn't he say he'd been in a fight with Chris Tarrant in a lift or something? And then Chris Tarrant said, I never fought him, I just saw him in a lift. What, is this Tyson Fury or the bloke from Morecambe Bay Beach? <laughs> Tyson Fury. It's not the first time the cubby holders uh, spoken of Tyson Fury, actually. He was on the Instagram page. I asked people who was the original Gypsy King, the guy from, from Russia with Love or, or Tyson Fury. The cubbies voted for the from Russia with Love guy, of course. Oh, yeah, I do remember this now. Yeah, because we didn't, we, we forget. Was his name Vavra or Favra or something? But we just kept calling him the Gypsy King. <laughs> yeah, Vavra, I think that was it. He's not even a king. What, what's he a king of? The king of providing threesomes. Well, cl- well and, and farting women, apparently. Get him buried! So let's begin the episode, as ever, with On the Scene, where we examine scenes from the Bond franchise that we think deserve special recognition and attention. As you can see from the title, actually, of this episode, it is a pre-title special episode, uh, so it's only fitting that we look at a pre-title sequence. More specifically, the uh, the most recent and the longest pre-title of them all from 2021's No Time to Die. So before we discuss the scene, let's remember what happens, and uh, quite a lot happens. It's over to Mr. Alan Partridge. Why are all Deucey's gun barrels so weirdly fast? Bang! Where's the blood dribbling down, bit ominous? Little Madeline's playing on a Tamagotchi while her skanky French mom trash talks her dad through a mouthful of fag ash and skanky box wine. Then Mama gets machine gunned by Safin in a Japanese mask and Big White Parker. Maddie pops a cap in his ass. Then he inexplicably rescues her from drowning in the ice lake despite trying to shoot her minutes earlier. Fast forward to the present, or a few years ago because Maddie's only pregnant here and her kid's a toddler later on, but anyway. Her and Bond are nobbing their way around an impossibly pretty Italian town, while the dialogue and score make very obvious nods to Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Again, bit ominous. Bond is still moping over Vesper. Get over your bloody self, man. So goes to have a moment at her tomb, which bloody blows up in his face. After doing a Tarzan swing from a bridge and an evil Knievel bike jump, some weird one-eyed dude makes him think matters set him up. He's bloody livid, so he pushes her about a bit before shoving her in the Aston for a chase. He neither nearly lets one-eyed now, no-eyed McGee shoot her in the face before he machine guns the shit out of a load of baddies and probably a UNESCO-protected marketplace before popping her on a train and being like, you don't see ya. He doesn't even know where the bloody train's going. And before the Eilish kicks in, she clutches her belly. God, it's all so bloody ominous. The end. Thanks very much, Alan. So is this sequence ruined by the rest of the film? 
Uh, yes, I think it is. Uh, Rami Malek's character isn't powerful at all in the later scenes, I don't think. And of course, we all know what happens at the end of the film. But kind of putting that aside and taken in isolation, I really love this sequence, actually. It's probably one of my favourite pre-title sequences, to be honest. I think it's got quite a lot of things going on. It's suspenseful. It's creepy. It's emotional as well. It's got people invested in Bond's love affair, which perhaps they weren't in the previous uh, Spectre film. Lots of action as well. And it's just a real shame that it is... uh... It is ruined by the rest of the film. I know we've mentioned kind of in previous episodes that uh, Die Another Day kind of has a great pre-title sequence and then the rest of the film goes rapidly downhill. Um, Now, I I would never compare No Time to Die to Die Another Day, but certainly the pre-title sequence for me is probably the, the shining light of the whole film. The previous record for the longest pre-title sequence was uh, The World Is Not Enough, which was just over 14 minutes. This one is a real marathon. It kind of smashes that, but I think it's just over 23 minutes. At the start, when Safin is is kind of traipsing across the the frozen lake, it it feels more like a horror film. Safin's character never really lives up to that that sort of menace that he kind of portrays in the opening pre-title sequence. And there's, there's so much to unpack in those early scenes and it just feels like it's kind of this is the high point of the film. But um, I'm not sure what you guys think to that, whether you would agree with that. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um, but Martin sort of hits on it in a very similar sense in that watching it in the full context of what happens next, it becomes emblematic of the wider problem of No Time to Die. This all looks and feels great. And yet you sort of look below the surface and it's a bit clunky and misguided and sort of makes no sense. And it is because... They're sort of both trying to finish the last film, but also create an arc which leads into this one. And it ultimately just doesn't work at all. Um, but we should, I know he's a bit of a persona non grata now, but we should actually credit um, Kari Fukunaga for this, because I think he builds on what Sam Mendes did in terms of marrying the sort of high style of the Craig era to a little bit more of the feel of traditional Bond movies. So there's the epic sweep still in the eye-popping visuals. Um, but also we get the re-injectment of excitement in the action sequences here, which Mendes perhaps lacked. Um, and actually the moment with the the sort of, you know, the machine guns after Bond looks like he's just going to let Madeline be shot is brilliant. Just that sort of constant donutting shooting up the marketplace. Yeah, I was, I was actually trying to work this out as well. I think the pre-title sequence is near enough the same as my entire special on the Aston Martin DB5. I think we're we're pretty much closer. Really, Phil, your, yours felt longer. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's interesting that you said, Adam, that it's it's clunky at this uh, the beginning part of the film here, the pre-titles, because I'd I'd agree that is it is clunky compared to the like linking together with the rest of the film. But for me, a pre-title sequence, the main thing I'm looking for is action and kind of to be excited. And I remember sitting in the cinema watching this pre-title sequence and just grinning uh, ear to ear and think, because I I don't know about you guys, but when you're sitting in the cinema watching a Bond film, there's an extra weight of responsibility as a Bond fan. I I kind of look around the room and I think, yeah, I'm going to appreciate some of this more than these guys. I'm I'm not looking down on the Fairweather Bond fans. We we need them. But I kind of look around and I want it to be good. Uh, And actually, it probably lost me after the firing of the guns from the Aston Martin. If you remember, there's that scene with the bell tolling above. And I thought that's far too symbolic. That means one of them is going to die in the film. And I'm guessing it's probably Bond. So my mood changed as soon as that happened. Uh, but before that, I thought the action was was marvellous. What would have been so much better on this is if 
Madeline actually had betrayed him, just shoving a woman on a train and you've no idea where it's going is a very Bond way to sort of handle the fact that he's always broken up between films with whoever the leading lady was from the last one. I went into a bit of a tangent wondering sort of how the various Bond actors would do that. I mean, Roger Moore, it'd just be very, now you go sit down in that carriage and I'll see you in the buffet car. Connery would just be, just shut yourself down on there, you silly twit. You you say that, but Roger Moore, let's be honest, he was known for shoving women into wardrobes, so I get the feeling he could shove a woman onto a train if need be. He'd just, you know, probably put her into a compartment and, and leave her. Well, he does do that with solitaire as well, doesn't he? I did love seeing it in the cinema just because, you, you know, I think it's always great to see a bomb film at the cinema, principally because you get the reaction. So when there was the huge bridge jump, which is, you know, which is still probably one of the best moments of the film, there was a huge gasp as people, you know, realised he was kind of flying through the air as, uh, you know, obviously they've done it for real. And there's some great moments in in the title sequence, I think we mentioned in the our episode review, um, where the production team noted during their shoot that there was a fine dust along a lot of the road in Matera that was making it difficult for the bikes and the cars to do the stunts. So at great expense, I think it was something like $100,000, they bought as much Coca-Cola as they could to make the road surface sticky. Um, and that allowed them to do some of those great stunts for real. I, I don't think that it needs to be more than 15 minutes, to be honest. You know, we look at The World Is Not Enough. That is... That is enough in terms of how much that pre-title sequence goes for. Because The World Is Not Enough, the original opening title sequence was just the Swiss banker bit in Bilbao with the stunt of him jumping out the window. And then test audiences were like, well, that was crap. And then the boat race comes on. They're like, oh, this is really good. So I wonder if a similar thing happened. Like they had the sort of, you know, Safin and Maddie in the ice and everything and thought, oh, it was kind of good and it's atmospheric, but it's not spectacular enough so they sort of encroach into the rest of the film a bit i find safin really confusing here because how old is he because i've looked this up rami malik is only four years older than leia sidhu and yet it, it, they seem like they're the same age much later in the film even though obviously safin is a grown man at this point and then their relationship just doesn't seem to have gone anywhere she remembers him as the masked man but then he sits in her office later on she doesn't even recognize him so clearly there wasn't I thought there was like a Fritzl type type thing going on in her childhood, but I don't think it could have been. Yeah, I agree, Adam. I think it was far too confusing on the first watch, second watch, and any... Well, I mean, most Bond fans haven't watched it a second time. I, I have, and it was still just as confusing. But I do I remember sitting in the cinema thinking, well, what's what's with this villain? Is there some kind of cloning technique that he's, he's cloned himself, another one? Or he, he just doesn't age, it's turning very dye another day? It didn't make any sense to me, no. And I think it's made worse by the fact... I mean, I could accept that if Remy Malek's performance and the acting and the, the script was good enough, but I don't think it was. They just didn't utilise that character at all, did they? Which is a real shame, given how long the film is and how much time they had to do something and, and they didn't. There is just a weird thing in general with the ages going on in this, because like when he goes to Vesper's grave, I looked at the dates, and she was apparently only 23 years old at the time of Casino Royale. Now, Eva Green's a very old-looking 23, I must admit. She seems far more... Maybe it's just her performance. You know, they're, they're meant to have had this sort of really long and impactful romance, which doesn't really seem to have been reflected in, you know, because Spectre, they only just kind of get to know each other. So it's kind of how long is the gap between Spectre... I know we had a big gap between the actual films coming out, but was that meant to be a, in real time, or was that, you know... 
Yeah, and the dialogue is working over time to establish why they're so perfectly suited, isn't it? Like when her mum says to, "Oh, your dad's actually a killer. Is that who you love, murderers?" It's it's a very, very sort of clear implication of, "Oh, yeah, she does because her dad was one, and therefore she just loves Bond so much." My theory is that Casino Royale was so easy to follow because you had uh, Giancarlo Giardini narrating things in in a calm way. Maybe we needed him there in No Time to Die. <laughs> Maybe they should have done an Honor Majesty style montage instead of just they've rocked up in a very pretty Italian town. So there's a bit of them horseback riding, a little bit of them sort of wandering along a beach. And then you've just got Giancarlo Giannini's dulcet tones. And slowly but surely, Bond and the daughter of his great enemy, Mr. White found that maybe they had more in common than they had realised. Exactly, that's why why it worked so well in Casino Royale. Apparently, they all knew how to play poker around that table, apart from Daniel Craig. And like Michael G. Wilson and the writers, Purvis and Wade, have like a regular poker game. So they're all like seasoned veterans. And Craig doesn't have a clue what he's doing. It nicely summarises our thoughts on No Time to Die that we've gone to Casino Royale here. The one thing, actually, which is quite good in this is it never actually explains how Spectre sort of frames Madeline and finds Bond. And they've got this sort of crazy elaborate network going on thing. It's that Mr. White thing, isn't it? They're everywhere. They're in your chamber pot. They're sitting down on a bench in your garden, whatever it is, he says. But like that that reach of influence is really interesting, which, again, in the full context of the film, just makes it such a waste that Dr. Borat kills them all instantly. There are pretty much elements of the three titles, although it's it is flawed in many respects. This is probably the high point of the entire film, really, apart from you know maybe Cuba or you know when Bond is getting his revenge on CIA agent who kills Felix. But when, that is also probably the the only other high point to mention. I had a brother. His name was Felix Leiter. So let's move on to our main feature of the episode: our plans for Bond twenty six. So we're planning everything so Barbara and Michael don't have to. Last time, if you recall, we compiled a short list of potential directors and lead Bond actors. And since then, you guys, our cubbies, have also been letting us know your opinions. So that's our first point of order. We're going to cast James Bond and put in place a director. And we'll move on to the next step of the process, which is also in this pre-title sequence special. Uh, We're going to decide on a suitable pre-title sequence for Bond 26 that would hopefully accentuate the the qualities of our chosen Bond and our chosen director. So uh, let's firstly, should we go over to, uh, to Phil? What were the reactions over on Twitter slash X for our shortlist? Yeah, we had a great response. The overall winner, of course, was always um, probably not much of a surprise. Um, the winner from Twitter was Henry Cavill. Um, we did also get some intriguing um, left field suggestions. So one of our um, Twitter followers suggested Warwick Davis. One of the more unusual ones was Paddy McGuinness. Not really sure where that was going to land. Um, not sure if it was going to be his sort of time um, in Max and Paddy's Road to Nowhere or earn his time as uh, Take Me Out, you know, let the Bond see the villain or let the sexual see the harassment i'm i'm not sure where where paddy oh, no, oh, no, I've, I've got a really good one i've got a really good one let the pussy see the galore no lighter no like it in terms of directors not really any surprises we announced that uh martin campbell was the the top choice fitter he kind of came at head and shoulders above the rest um edgar wright was the next closest and of course, Martin Campbell, as we've already discussed, is, is a very much a safe pair of hands, um, having directed two previous Bond films 
um, to critical acclaim. Yeah, we had similar results over on Instagram as well. We did a, a number of polls, and uh, yeah, Henry Cavill came out on top as the other Bond actor, and Martin Campbell coming out on top as the director as well. So mirroring those results, Phil. Uh, I d- didn't someone say uh, no beards and no gingers? I thought was my my favorite comment from the yes. cubbies. <laughs> Cameron yeah, Monaghan this, this would be a again, great this bond. Is, I'm sticking by that. Yeah, this this was in response to Cam Monaghan. Um, it was uh, a, a very. It was only one person that that came back to say that they didn't want beards or gingers, but they they were quite insistent that we that we didn't put forward Cam Monaghan. Um, who knows? You know, gingers are kind of a, a minority in in UK society. Maybe they will there will be a ginger bond one day, you know, maybe there'll be a bold bond one day. We never know. Didn't you all scupper Henry Golding though on the sort of no beards, no gingers things? I think you picked a picture of him where he's sporting a beard, which he doesn't normally. No, no, we we, we have now appointed it with Henry Cavill is our bond. I mean, he's not going to be Eon's bond because I believe he is um, signed up for a Highlander franchise. They're going to remake Highlander. I mean, Highlander, the greatest film ever, simply because you've got Christophe Lambert playing a Scotsman and Scotsman Sean Connery playing a Spaniard who doesn't understand anything that's going on in Scotland when he visits. Yeah, I think the Cubbies have done well there. I think Cavill and Campbell would be a winning combination. It's just a, it's just a shame that it won't happen in real life. So we move on to the next step of the process in Bond 26. We need to decide what's going to happen in the pre-title sequence. So uh, Adam, what are your ideas? What are your plans for the, uh, the pre-title of Bond 26? It's the International Space Station. Got some astronauts doing repairs. They've got Russian flags on. Another astronaut comes up. He's got a UK flag on the helmet. He's got like a rocket pack, pulls out a knife, cuts them all away. They've all drifted into space. Anyway, he gets in, removes the helmet. Oh, it's not Henry Cavill at all. It's a fake out. It's some villain. We'll we'll get to know them later. So anyway, cut to Tokyo. Private room, swanky Japanese restaurant. We've got a big, scary boss entertaining six other Japanese men round a little private dinner table. There's a very tall bodyguard behind him whose name is Gun Show. So anyway, he thanks them for like making some random piece of tech, and that'll connect to the later plot later on. But he then presents them each with a plate with one piece of sushi on it. Five of them are safe, but one of them is poisonous fugu because one of them is for a traitor in the ranks. So anyway, one guy eats, is okay, another guy eats, he's all right, no one's poisoned yet, same the third guy, gets the fourth guy, and he suddenly says in English, you know, in Britain, we prefer our fish, pow, bam, whack, beats everyone up, battered, and then he stands tall, takes off his Japanese wig, grabs a towel from a champagne bucket and wipes a load of foundation off his face, turns around, and it's James Henry Cavill Bond. But but the tech thing's gone, so he grabs the boss and says, where is it? But there's a big shattering of the screen behind him. He's been shot. Restaurants in pandemonium. Gun show the tall bodyguard. He's running off. So anyway, Bond has to fight some angry sushi chefs on the way out. There's like wasabi and, you know, salmon flying everywhere. Gets outside, jumps into a really cool Honda sports car, and we think, oh, it's going to be a big Bond gadget chase. No, there isn't. Gun show, turns round, takes his hand off. There's a massive bore shotgun hidden under his hand and he pops the Honda's wheels. Anyway, gun show runs away, gets onto the Tokyo monorail. Bond misses the train. So he does a big stunt jump back down to the ground. He's like, oh God, what am I going to chase the monorail on? Gets the nearest vehicle he can, which is a Segway. So gun shows up top. He's riding through Tokyo on the monorail. We've got a sort of French connection ripoff where Bond's driving into traffic on this Segway. Uh, monorail gets to the next station. Gun shows looking around. 
no sign of Bond. I've got away with it. It starts to pull away. Big jump, Segway leaps up over station and it's on the monorail and he's riding a Segway on the monorail and he gets onto the train. He has a bit of a fight with Gun Show. He grabs him by the gun arm and then shoves him out the window. Cavill turns to the camera. Always fancied myself a gunslinger. So then you think that's it, but there's a chopper out the window that's come to collect Gun Show and it's now thinking, oh, he's dead. I'll, I'll just blow the train up. So it lines up a rocket launcher for a bit of a track ahead. Bond, I'm going to stop this, leans out the window. He's got that grappling hook watch from The World Is Not Enough, shoots it along, does a massive swing from the back of the monorail, jumps into the cabin and manages to slam on the brakes so that it avoids the broken, exploded track bit, and then the chopper flies off. And anyway, in the cabin, there's like a really good-looking, sexy Japanese driver lady. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. She's like in bits. I could use a bath to relax. I know a good place. Go to the opening titles. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd watch that. I don't know about you, Phil, but I have not found this in as much detail as Adam. Yeah, I was, was going to say, I, think, I, I haven't, I've gone for a more stripped back approach with mine, but... No, I think it sounds really good, Adam. Spectacular opening to Cavill's start as Bond. Nice little callbacks as well. I like your use of the, uh, what was it, the world is not enough, the watch. And I think a few little Brosnanisms, obviously distances are one from the Craig of us and says, no, no, we're back to main Bond continuity. This is the guy who has always been Bond. Yeah, I like it. And it starts in space as well. Moonraker goes to Tokyo. You only live twice. It's Yeah. 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 It's new Just Bond to get great... old. Yeah, we could tie it into the next anniversary, you know, depending on how long it takes Eon to get the next film out. So that could work well. Yeah, it probably will be 2027 by then, won't it? Okay, so a spectacular entry there from Adam. Uh, how about Phil? What was your pre-title idea? I've gone a little bit differently for mine. So the gun barrel won't be coming in at the start. I plan for the gun barrel to be at the end of the film. What we open on is the beautiful Italian city of Siena. Obviously, very, very tight, crowded, um, you know, beautiful um, traditional Italian buildings. We see the shot of the back of a man back of a man's head walking down a narrow cobbled street and he's into a courtyard could this be bond all we know is he's very smartly dressed very elegant he's carrying a briefcase he goes to a doorway wants to make sure he's not being followed so he goes in we then cut to a man sat at a cafe outside one of the piazzas and he, you can see he's got an earpiece, but he's just gently sipping a, cu a cup of espresso and reading a newspaper. Very inconspicuous. We don't know who this is, but we soon hear a voice in his ear say he's on the move. Suddenly the man gets up and he's walking towards the same doorway that this person has gone through. But he doesn't go there. He finds a secret entrance that leads to a flight of stairs that leads him to the top of a balcony where he could, he's got enough cover to be able to see what the other man is doing. We soon realise this is a secret rendezvous between two um, government officials who are, or we assume government officials, who are trading um, secret documents. Um, the person watching them is already um, armed with a silenced pistol. Suddenly, one of the um, people shoots the man with the briefcase. So the person that is in the secret rendezvous shoots them dead. So clearly Bond is on the balcony and he's ready to strike. So he's already leaping from his um, position and he's in a foot chase. This is where the action starts. So we're going through the narrow streets of cobbled streets of Siena. 
Bond nicks somebody's Vespa motorbike. Again, callbacks to um, Vespa and Casino Royale. The bloke on foot also nicks a motorbike. So we've got a bike chase through the streets of Siena. We're dodging, you know, little old ladies trying to go about their everyday business and being sworn at in Italian. We're also trying to avoid being shot at by the henchman on his motorbike. What we don't know is this is the main henchman from the film. It's a chap called Dehan, and he is going to become a ruthless killer that we're, we're going to hear about later on in the film. Do we know what organization they're working for? No. All we know is we need to retrieve that briefcase. The person in the, ear, in the earpiece is shouting at Bond to keep up and to make sure that they don't lose sight of them. So we don't know what's in the case. All we know is we've got to get it back. The chase culminates in the henchman has got a problem with the bike, so he's had to jettison it. Fortunately, he's by a river. So he's basically then gone onto one of the boats, chucked somebody over the side, and he's already off and away. Bond is a bit more suave. He's not going to do that. So he basically doesn't chuck them over the side, but he kind of moves them over and pinches the boat. They're now in a boat chase. We're through the narrow, narrow waterways of Siena. We're still being shot at by said henchman. Bond is trying to shoot back, but doing it one-handed, he's struggling. So we get a, a high-stakes kind of chase between the two. He's, he's desperate not to lose the Han. Next thing you know, Bond is on the front of the boat trying to reach across to try and jump over, and he does a daring leap onto the back, we're now into a boat fight chase where basically Bond and DeHaan are kicking seven bells out of each other. There's one moment where, jokingly, DeHaan throws a briefcase at Bond. Bond thinks it may have a bomb in it, so he throws it back. And we're into a weird sort of comedy moment of hot potato where the two are sort of throwing it at each other. Eventually, Bond kicks DeHaan in the knackers. He's got the briefcase. He jumps into the water where he gets picked up by a boat which has a beautiful woman on it. Again, kind of callbacks to the living daylights where Bond is rescued. Basically, Bond will have some sort of quip that he can deliver, and that is where the sequence ends. I really like that film. That sort of feels like a very sort of Daniel Craig Skyfall-esque building chase sequence, you know, foot, bike, boat, with a bit of an element of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in it. It's sort of the, the opening stuff reminded me of, you know, the opening of the film version, when it's Mark Strong meeting someone, I think, in Istanbul somewhere, and there's just sort of people gathering around and he knows something's not right. And the boat chase reminded me of, have you ever seen Patriot Games, the Harrison Ford as Jack Ryan film? There's a mental fight between him and Sean Bean, but they have a fist fight on an out-of-control speedboat at the end of that, which is amazing. Yeah, I was trying to aim for the sort of fun and serious elements together. Yeah, we'll move on to my one, and I certainly haven't planned it out as much as uh, Adam and Phil. I've just got some just random ideas that I want there to be in the pre-title. Uh, it's not really planned out at all, to be honest. My idea for it is uh, maybe similar to you guys. You've got Cavill in the middle of his career. Even though we're rebooting the series, I feel like we need to go in there. Cavill's a fairly oldish Bond, so I don't think we can do the same thing that we did with uh, with Craig. And that seems to match with Campbell if, if he's going to be our director as well. We see them in the middle of the career in, in Goldeneye. So he's done it before. He knows how to do it. Uh, so yeah, my idea is to uh, have Cavill in this pre-title kind of being in a in an art gallery and he needs to steal a precious necklace so a bit of oceans 11 going on uh, and maybe he's accompanied by a beautiful lady who might be trying to retrieve her property uh, the property of a lady and they get into some fist fights with the guards 
we need to show a bit of feminism as well nowadays with uh, with Bond. So I think the the beautiful lady should be the one who takes out a couple of guards on their way to retrieve the necklace. That was my idea. I don't know if they're in Bonham's auction for Roger Moore's stuff, but uh, <laughs> I assume it's a different auction. That they need to retrieve this necklace and it acts as a kind of MacGuffin device for later in the film. Because, uh, of course, we haven't planned out the rest of the film. So I thought we need kind of a generic item for them to steal, a bit like Phil's briefcase. Have Cavill showing that he was sophisticated, going to this art gallery alongside a fellow agent. Maybe she could be working for MI6 as well. I, I do like it when the MI6 massive get involved. Uh, so it could be money penny, but we don't know. Well, I was about to say, with the, the necklace that you, you're looking to steal, could that have like a sort of secret device hidden in it? Or could this be some sort of significance to it? We could have a similar kind of Moonraker glass style fight, actually, where it's basically him having a massive punch up with really fine artwork and really fine things. So you could have like legitimate guards trying to comically save pieces of fine art that then get trashed because bond just throws a you know throws a guy through a, a display cabinet or something like that so we could have quite comedic elements to it as well you know it could be a, a display of the 007 store for example you know and you could have barbara broccoli and michael g wilson trying to protect all their fine wares for 38 million pounds I love how you've even worked in Michael G. Wilson's cameo already to this one. That That's really good. It could actually get both sides of Cavill's interpretation, because on the one hand, it's the art gallery. It's almost a bit Thomas Crown affair, gentleman, spy. Obviously, Pierce Brosnan played Thomas Crown in the remake. But on the other, I really like what Phil was saying. If like they steal it and then there's a big fist fight with a load of henchmen, it could almost go a bit Jackie Chan wacky, where they're sort of, as you say, trying to have this fight, but Bond at the same time is trying not to let all of these priceless artworks get damage it's sort of the opposite of the moonraker glass factory i thought you could use it could end up on the rooftop and you could use the pearl necklace to escape you know he sort of uses it as a handle on like a makeshift zip wire so he's like zooming across london or whatever sort of posh city it's in and he's got like the 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 female companion with him who's just being a bit sort of you know mary goodnight and being don't damage my pearls watch my pearls although that might not be particularly feminist well, the other option I was going to, you could be, it could be a Stacey Sutton style character when she's um, trying to get the goon, Bond and sort of trying to get the goons out of her house. And Bond is desperately trying to protect the, uh, you know, the fine China vase. Um, and in the end, Stacey Sutton just smashes it over one of the villain's heads. So, you know, that could be part of this sequence as well, where Bond is, is desperately trying to protect these, uh, you know, these fine artworks and then, the the female lead is then just trashing stuff. Although we didn't ask Martin, is yours going to have a gun barrel at the start? Yeah, I feel like we need to have one. Even the last two Craig films brought the gun barrel back. Maybe I need to work that in then. My gun barrel will start with the maybe the necklace, the round necklace. Mine's a mine's a ring of sushi rolls. Soy dribbles down. <laughs> yours is just a, a puffer fish <laughs> swimming in the middle of the barrel. Okay, so those are our three ideas for the pre-title sequence of Bond 26. So do let us know your opinions on social media uh, before our next episode, and we'll share some of your best ideas. There were no beards and no gingers in any of those pre-title sequences, so I hope we've made one fan happy at least. Japanese men all have beautiful bare skin. 
Um, so we'll move on now to our next segment, which is the 007 Best segment, where we rank our top seven in a variety of Bond categories. Previously, we ranked the Bond girl dresses with uh, some fantastic help from Carrie Louise Webb. This time, of course, it's the pre-title special, so we've compiled the cubbyhole list of top seven pre-title sequences. Number seven. In at number seven, we have the pre-title sequence from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, one of the pivotal um, kind of intros to any of the Bond films, because this was the first without um, Sean Connery. It was also quite key because it was um, Peter Hunt, of course, who directed uh, the film, was was kind of in early days as a kind of a director as well. So it was his kind of first big gig on the Bond films. So this, this is very much kind of the changing of the guard in terms of what we've seen with previous um, pre-title sequences. So it's... It feels very lavish in terms of the way that it's shot. It's the cinematography. I think we've seen before is beautiful. You know, Lazenby. You can tell he's he's obviously the youngest Bond we've ever had, and it's it sort of shows because there's that that kind of youth in terms of how he how he moves forwards. Yeah, very much so. First of all, apologies to Skyfall fans because technically this won a tiebreak with Skyfall. It got the same amount of votes, but um, I think one of the probably me. Uh, put it slightly higher than anyone had Skyfall. It is one of the great title sequences for everything Phil said, just the cool style and the look of it, just that sort of the crash zooms in the fight and on the cigarette and the whip crack editing and sounds as well. But it sort of almost tries very hard to not be one of the great um, pre-title sequences. I mean, the very first thing we see is uh, Q talking about radioactive lint, which, I mean, might be the least exciting gadget he's ever come up with. I mean, the first dry cleaner you go to, that's that gadget gone. Also, apparently there was going to be a plastic surgery scene in this pre-title sequence explaining the fact that Connery now looks like Lazenby. Uh, which I am quite pleased that they did cut in the end because, all right, you've explained the face change, but how do you explain the voice, height and physique also looking incredibly different? Yeah, I'd certainly go along with that. Uh, I'm not sure I voted this one on my top seven, but I'd, I still think it's great. I think I'd recommend going back to, was it, it must have been series one when we reviewed Honor Majesties with Nick and we went into some detail about this scene being a really great introduction to Lazenby. I also love that Bond is, because this is like dawn, isn't it? And yet Bond is kind of dressed in his evening finery. So he's basically been out all night and he's off to breakfast. Like, where, where's he been? Has he been to some weird all-night orgy or something, do we think? <laughs> Knowing Lazenby, probably. Number six. And in at number six, we have the pre-title sequence from Goldfinger. Now, this one, I think even a casual Bond fan might remember this pre-title sequence. I think it's a fairly classic one, isn't it? The way of introducing Bond into the film, but being fairly separate to the actual, it's fairly inconsequential, actually, to what happens in Goldfinger. It's kind of a separate mini mission. We get a nice combination of comedy, don't we? Starting in the uh, the lake with the ridiculous suit that he has underneath his wetsuit, then putting the explosives um, and the, the lovely fist fight that he has before the shocking, positively shocking. Uh, so I think it's a lovely little combination of comedy, action, bit of suspense before we get into the arguably, for, for many people, the best Bond film. So it's a nice little uh, mini action sequence, which uh, which I've always really loved. Yeah, I've, I've always wanted to know how he kept his uh, dinner jacket dry under his wetsuit it does seem a bit strange that the setup they have there because there's a you know obviously it's quite an industrial surrounding and there's you know um it seems weird that bond is the only one that knows where this entrance way is where he's able to turn the secret door and that you know it feels very uh you know kind of scooby-doo-esque in terms of how he's doing it and uh 
strangely, he sees the villain coming up behind him in the reflection in the woman's eyes, which technically I don't think that would actually work. So in real life, Bond would have probably been killed. Yeah, I think on the white tie suit, the most ridiculous thing about it is how overdressed he then is because he just sort of wears it to go into the grottiest dive bar with a sort of dirty belly dancer in it. Uh, The director, Guy Hamilton, in the band sort of Criterion director's commentary, talks about the fact that compared to the previous two films, Goldfinger is absolutely mental and ridiculous. And so it was really important for him to come up with an opening sequence which actually injects a lot of preposterous humour into it so that you could get the audience early and sell them on everything that was going to happen afterwards which this does in absolute space and it's why it works so well there's one sort of question i've always had from this which which is sort of mentioned that the factory was making heroin flavored bananas now is this someone i never got this is this someone who is smuggling heroin in bananas or is it just someone selling a new flavor of banana because if it's the latter why is bond involved surely that's just a food standards issue it does it also does seem to use quite a lot of explosives to to destroy what isn't that big a plant it seems to be like a massive when you consider how small like the explosion is in a view to a kill for example this one is massive you know the, the whole ground shakes it's so big so it, it seems like he's you know is it is a bit of overkill you know quite literally using a hammer to smash a nut almost maybe an alternative but connery just goes in there and starts eating the bananas <laughs> I'll get rid of them this way. <laughs> I love the plastic explosive as well, how he has to sort of squeeze it out of that weird hose. Because, like, there's a load more of it. And I was always, as a kid, thinking, is he going to, like, do all of that? Are we just going to be here for 10 minutes while he, sque- he does, like, a mini art attack, squeezing a load of glue from this weird pipe? It does look a bit like cookie dough, actually. You know when you get sort of processed cookie dough before it's been... It might be. They they use mashed potato, didn't they, for that Diamonds Are Forever pre-title? Maybe we should find this maybe, out. Maybe Bond's, uh, maybe Bond's taken it by mistake. Oh, damn, I meant to bring the plastic explosive. This is Money Penny's cake mix. Luckily, it's still highly flammable. Number five. And in at number five, a personal favourite opening sequence and film of all of ours, it's Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, so I think the word is bombast for this one, isn't it? We've set up Brosnan, we've come off the back of a roaring success with Goldeneye, now we're going to take it one plane higher. First of all, David Arnold's amazing score. I mean, he is, and his music is the hero of this whole sequence, as is the sheer amount of stuff blowing up. We had a lot of gunfire in Goldeneye, and we had a big explosion at the end, but in this, literally everything goes sky high in a very satisfying way. Um, It's also a really nice sort of intro and showcase for someone we really haven't talked enough about. And that's Colin Salmon as Robinson, who sort of got left out of the sort of Daniel Craig rejig of the Groovy Gang. But he's great here, isn't he? He's so cool and suave. And he's also extremely hot on the names of every single terrorist and every brand and type of weapon at this market. Is he like secretly the rain man of sort of, you know, arms bazaars? Yeah, absolutely. I love this pre-title sequence. For me, it's probably the best of all of the Brosnans looking back. It's astonishing to think how much content they fit into one pre-title sequence because there's so much going on. You know, you've basically got bonding kind of covert. He's he's having to kind of blend in with all these terrorists and, and kind of this bizarre sort of terrorist jumble sale that seems to be going on. Um, just mentioning the sort of supporting cast as well, I think we need to give a shout out for Jeffrey Palmer and for um, the Russian, I forget the actor's name, that plays, is a British actor that plays the Russian general. But there's a great line where he goes, 
if Missile hits this, it'll make Chernobyl look like Picnic. And Jeffrey Palmer just goes, can't any of you people keep your things locked down? Yeah, it brings back lots of nostalgic childhood memories for me. I've mentioned before on the podcast that uh, I was a terrible player of Tomorrow Never Dies, the video game for PlayStation 1. This was the first level, of course, being the pre-title sequence and how terrible I was at the game. I spend a lot of time on this on this particular level, so maybe that should have fostered some hatred towards this scene, but it didn't. It just uh, it just it made it better for me, uh, if anything. And also, um, don't, don't you think now looking back, the pilot behind Bond who's trying to strangle him looks a bit like Novak Djokovic, which would explain how he's so hard-headed that his seat can be ejected and can actually smash through the metal hull of an aircraft above it. Now, I've not spotted Novak Djokovic before, Adam. I'll, I'll pay attention the next time. VJM retrenched, perhaps we could have him in there. Yeah, yeah, the, the great lineage of tennis players in Bond. Um, I, I like how you pick up that Mick Chernobyl look like picnic line as well, Phil. There's a thing with Russians in Bond and, and their love of sort of similes. Isn't it Julie T. Wallace's character in Over Living Daylights as well? When Pete goes, his control panel will light up like Christmas tree. Um, moving on to number four in list, it's Casino Royale, of course, Daniel Craig's debut as Bond. This is very much a more stylized um, introduction, you know, very kind of old world spy thriller style. Bond is is on his first mission. It's clear that he's, he's kind of got to learn quite quickly, but he's not going to be intimidated by somebody who's perhaps more experienced and, and you know, he's afraid to kill when he needs to yeah it's really punchy isn't it both literally and metaphorically punchy it's short but it's all you really need to know about the new bond daniel craig's bond it's a it's a hard reset we've moved quite far away from the invisible cars and we've kind of got a, a bond that means business so yeah it's not very not very spectacular it's just a fight scene in a toilet and and shooting a guy in an office but it's uh, it tells you everything you need to know doesn't it about the uh, the character of this of this new man yeah it injects a totally different energy to the series um and and it was very audacious at the time we haven't seen anything like this really this kind of drastic departure you know it's black and white there's no gun barrel it's a much bloodier fight than we're used to i mean it boldly reclaims the toilet fight from austin powers doesn't it you know who does number two work for um as well as a sort of open question there's that line isn't there m doesn't mind you making money on the side ride and she just wish it wasn't selling secrets hang on what would she rather him do to earn money on the side do you think he's got a sideline in um making Etsy Christmas decorations or doing sort of, you know, DIY tutorials on YouTube? I mean, based on previous uh, spies that have defected to Russia, he's probably a rent boy, but yeah, that that might be not PC for 2006 Casino Royale. Number three. And in at number three, we have the Living Daylights. So we've moved from one Bond entrance to another Bond entrance here, an earlier entrance of Dalton. Well, quite spectacular, or many of all of them are spectacular. But this one, I think, is exceptionally good because of Dalton doing the stunts himself. I think we've mentioned this before. Um, it's, a, it's a great way to introduce Dalton. I quite like the comedy as well at the start, where we, I like the introduction we get of uh, Robert Brown's M, his papers flying everywhere. Uh, I like the, the, the setup of uh, the training exercise. This is everything that Never Say Never Again should have been and wasn't it's a, it's a training exercise that goes wrong but in a good way uh, and we get the uh yeah the just the the truck flying off the edge of the cliff just a fantastic way to introduce dalton you know it's kind of on on paper it doesn't sound that exciting you know it's, it's basically a training exercise between mi6 and the sas and 
you know, they're just doing like a almost like a joke exercise. You know, there's some great little moments where it's like, hey, wait, you're dead. And literally Bond just shoves one of the soldiers out of the way. And it's, you know, but there is, you know, the sense of real menace. We've, we've kind of touched on the fact before of my idiotic theory that double uh, O agents get better the lower the number they are. In this, we see that that clearly isn't the case. Perhaps the only thing that lets it down is that Dalton doesn't look quite as comfortable as other actors with his final delivery when he lands on the boat and also there's the beautiful woman saying, you know, there's uh, there's never anybody of interest in the Mediterranean and then suddenly Bond just drops in. Yeah, I do love that um, it might be 002 and 004, you know, but they're sort of introduced as two contender Bonds. Like, oh, is this Bond? Is this Bond? Oh, no, it's this Welsh rugged guy with the wind blowing in his hair in the SAS outfit. The Roger Moore era is well and truly over. Um, I, I like his delivery on, at the end with the uh, the woman on the boat because there's sort of that oh, better make a two. There's that sort of implication. He only needs an hour there. And because this is Dalton and this is like the AIDS era one woman bond, presumably he only needs an hour because he has no interest in actually taking her to bed. He's probably just looking at the champagne and thinking, oh, an hour for stiff champagne. I think I'll just treat myself to a snifter. I guess the one thing really, though, is as a training exercise, um, they've given the guards at Gibraltar really girly pink sort of powder puff guns. It's not it's not the most menacing thing. I mean, the, the paintballers who did Antin on Biker Grove are a bit more threatening than that, aren't they? You think they should have been flown in, Adam, from Newcastle into Gibraltar? Did you see the Biker Grove when Jeff, uh, Big Jeff, died in a tragic fireworks accident? No, maybe I've erased this from my memory. All I can remember is PJ and Duncan and whichever one it was getting blind. I'm blinded! Boy, can he see, man? Number two. And in at number two is yet another Bond introduction with Goldeneye. Um, so as it turns out, Craig is actually the second Bond in a row to be introduced via a toilet fight. The key difference here is that Bronholm is upside down and a little giggly. Um, and of course, giving Jim Dowdall, our old friend, a good punch in the face. Um, the first proper reveal of Brosnan after that moment is awesome, though. Just the door coming back. His close-up in sort of profile with the gun by the side of it, absolutely brilliant. Uh, but we we sort of also get this rather funny thing of um, you know, him telling Trevelyan in the midst of a firefight, uh, buy him a pint. So maybe it's revealed that actually Bond's only ever drinking martinis to look cool for the girls. Actually, he just wants to chug pints with the lads, doesn't he? That's why he's having a Heineken whenever he thinks everyone's not looking. Um, but this sequence is incredibly cool, begins with that extraordinary damn bungee jump stunt. And it just doesn't look back from there. As um, I think it was Nicholas Sujic, Mr. Goldeneye, who talked about this film divides classic Bond from modern Bond. And it's it's evident from the get-go, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also the fact, we've got to remember, at this point in time, there was such that huge six-year gap between, um, you know, kind of License to Kill and Goldeneye coming out. So, if anything, there was so much more riding on, not just the whole pre-title sequence being stand out but the whole film as such um so there's there's great moments of interplay of course there's the weirdly this it seems to be a very steep banked uh dam that is also on top of a mountain so i think somebody on twitter did work out the kind of geography of how that would work but again there's so much kind of crammed into this opening sequence that it's it's so memorable yeah i don't think i can add much to that it's uh it's just bloody brilliant isn't it goldeneye 
as a whole and as, as the pre-title sequence. I mean, we've said the pre-title can be a separate adventure on its own, which does work quite well. Uh, but I do like the fact that uh, in this one, we're introduced to some of these main players who are going to be really important to the plot uh, later down the line. So yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, wonderful. And of course, sort of to differentiate itself from Dolan, it, it goes to pains to add the humour back in, you know, with me and Phil have mentioned one-liners. There's also the, the sort of escape via squeaky trolley, you know, that lovely sort of silent sequence when suddenly there's the squeak, which is just hiding behind. Uh, you know, it goes dead quiet after being very noisy and spectacular. And then Oromov just sort of turns around and immediately shoots the guy who sort of had the itchy trigger finger. It'd been great if you, if you just shot the wrong bloke, wouldn't it? He just goes, bang. No, it wasn't him. It was Fred. Ah, oh, damn it. Shoots him as well. I mean, that would get a bit Monty Python slapstick if eventually, but maybe that's what it could have... That was the only thing missing. I also do just want to point out, there is, um, I think there is actually a Twitter page uh, dedicated to the Pierce Brosnan pain face in James Bond films. We do see a little bit of this in GoldenEye, where obviously we've mentioned the toilet scene where he sort of slowly drops in upside down. And you can tell he's really straining his kind of neck muscles and his uh, upper abdominal muscles to, to pull that off. There's also a really um, impactful moment, though, when Trevelyan is shot and kind of Bond retreats behind one of the canisters. And although it's, you know, people may say it may look a bit overacting, but for me, I think that that really does show, you know, there is a real sense of of pain and anger with, with Bond at that moment. Maybe there's potential to someone to edit together Brosnan's pained expressions and the Roger Moore groan. I think Brosnan would appreciate that. Number one. And so to our number one, our greatest James Bond pre-title sequence of them all. It is, of course, the icon, the one that everybody references. It is the spy who loved me. That amazing jump, of course. Bond is chased by the shits in uh, black jumpsuits with cream piping. He's not showing off, but, you know, he does do a backflip on his skis. Of course, brilliantly shot by Lewis Gilbert. It is an iconic way for Bond to enter the stage, particularly after we've had the not-so-interesting ones from The Man with the Golden Gun. This gets Bond right back in in centre stage. And let's give credit to Rick Sylvester as well, who I actually heard this recently, that he was nearly killed in that stunt. And basically what happened was that when the parachute opened, the skis that were meant to fly away from him actually came back towards him and nearly hit the parachute. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Alan Partridge uh, used that particular scene, or Steve Coogan chose that scene to use in the Alan Partridge series. They really thought about what would work best in terms of uh, comedy. One thing we could say is that maybe over time, this pre-title sequence has almost turned into a comedy because of Partridge, because of Austin Powers, Johnny English. They've all made fun of certain elements uh, that you can find in this title sequence, particularly the parachute jump. But yeah, I think the fact that it is such a a rich mine of comedy, I think, underlines the the true quality that's there (laughs) underneath. But it is also, looking back at it, this was the first pre-titles that was a properly epic action sequence. The others are kind of quirky, small-scale fights, or they're, you know, the villain murdering someone. So this is the original. It sets the standard all the other pre-title sequences are sort of measured by afterwards. Uh, you know, there's that lovely flip of um, the chief Russian agent being triple X. Uh, and not Michael Billington, who was tested for Bond, I think, more times than any other actor. He was Cubby's 
first choice if Roger Moore was unavailable um, at this point. Uh, Marvin Hamlish's great disco music, the Bond 77 theme. Um, of course, our first look inside the new Russian operation on um, the mammoth Ken Adams set that Lewis Gilbert absolutely hated having to photo. Also, I think one of the few times that we see actual naked ladies in a Bond film in um, the form of the uh, the pinups on the uh, the walls of the, uh, the ship that gets swallowed. You always take a shower with a pistol. Next up, we enter the James Bond Film Club, where Adam explores some weird and sometimes not so wonderful movies outside of the Bond universe. Uh, and I believe it's a particularly weird one this time. Adam, over to you. Yes, and indeed not so wonderful. So this week, it's OK Connery, a.k.a. Operation Kid Brother. So this is an Italian Bond ripoff from 1967, directed by Alberto Di Martino and starring Sean Connery's younger brother, Neil. Now, does Neil have the movie star charisma of his big brother, Sean? No. Is he even allowed to use his own voice in this? No, a random American dubs him, which is ridiculous because he was cast specifically because he both looks and sounds exactly like Sean Connery. And then they dub him. But anyway, he, he also apparently got this role, Neil Connery, because he got sacked from his job as a plasterer for losing his tools. And then he went on the radio about this to make a stink about it. And then everyone got interested because they're like, oh, it's Sean Connery's dipshit brother. Anyway, in this... He plays Dr. Neil Connery. So he's literally using his own name, who is a plastic, get rid, get this, who is a plastic surgeon, hypnotist and lip reader who is drawn into an MI6 plot to foil Thanatos, basically a Diet Coke Spectre, uh, when one of his patients is abducted. And now in the film, he is presented literally as the brother of MI6's top agent. But who's that meant to be? Because it can't be James Bond, because his name in this is literally Connery. But obviously, Sean's just an actor. He's not a real secret agent. So clearly, Italy at the time, like Japan, basically thought that James Bond and Sean Connery were one and the same people. Anyway, suffice it to say, the most interesting thing about this film is the stonking amounts of money they've spent getting actual big-time Bond alumni to be in it. So Connery, Neil Connery, of course, is recruited to MI6 by Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell, who are literally playing M and Moneypenny, albeit with Lois given a massive machine gun for one of the action sequences, which is by miles the best thing in the film. Um, actually, I think it was either Cubby or Sean Connery who got really pissed off at them for doing this because they got more money from doing this one film than all of the actual official bonds they did put together. And anyway, then with the baddies, Thanatos's number two and the main villain is played by Adolfo Celli, Largo from Thunderball. And their number one is played by Anthony Dawson, who's, of course, Professor Dent in Doctor No. But he's also, of course, the body double for Blofeld in From Russia With Love and Thunderball. So literally Spectres 1 and 2 have been carried over wholesale for this. And the main femme fatale is Daniela Bianchi, Tatiana from, from Russia With Love, who is the head of a, big, a whole brigade of sort of octopusy style fighting women who are actually called, I shit you not, the Wild Pussy Club. And they even have a massive all-singing and all-dancing bandwagon with massive pussy club sloganed across it. I'll give you an example of how bad this is. There's a joke where a sort of another villainess, not Bianchi, catches Neil Connery's eye by scrabbling on the floor looking for something in a way that basically makes her cleavage an unmissable national landmark. This joke would be stupid if they did it once. They repeat it three times in five minutes, and I counted. It's the same joke done three times in five minutes. Now, 
It does kind of actually pick up a bit in the last half an hour because the fight scenes are a little bit Batman TV series style pow wham. And amazingly, they've got Chelly in the most ridiculous outfit at the end. It looks like an SNM leather gang have broken onto the set of Jerry Anderson's Stingray. And he even throws in a very catchy theme tune warbled out by someone called Christy, uh, which goes somewhere along the lines of, OK, Conry, OK, Conry. I was I was gonna say, I've never seen this film, Adam, but I, I was gonna say it's a shame they didn't wait until the seventies, you know, have Robin Asquith and kind of the uh, fashions of a window cleaner crew doing this because it does sound like confessions of a uh, secret agents. It's actually not as kinky as do you remember when we did Dean Martin's The Silences? That was properly saucy and just every single female character in that is basically just in negligee. Yeah, I was gonna say oh, presumably he was there still bad blood between the Connery brothers? Because you said that he was unhappy about the casting of the other members. Oh, I don't think Connery... I don't think Sean was, was unhappy Neil did it. I mean, from Neil's point of view, he's just lost his job as a plasterer. And the amount of money they were generally offering people to be in this, I'm sure that Sean could have understood from someone who, as Jim Dowdall famously said, was as tight as a duck's ass, would, would have appreciated Neil's reasons for doing it. No, Sean got annoyed that Bernard Lee and Lois Maxwell did it. It was either Sean who got annoyed, or maybe it was Cubby got annoyed. It might have been Cubby, because obviously at this point it's 67. Sean's already left. Oh, thank you. And so it's on to our next segment, and Phil has always tried to teach us two things. First, never let them see you bleed. And second, always have some bloopers up your sleeve. Take it away, Phil. Because it is a pre-title special, I thought I'd go back to the Bond film that before No Time to Die, was the record holder for having the longest pre-title sequence. It is, of course, The World Is Not Enough this week. Many, For many Bond fans, it is pretty much the Marmite film, the film that you either love or hate from the franchise. So during the opening scenes where Bond is ready to jump out of the window, we can clearly see him uh, tying the curtain rope to his belt. Now, when we see Bond reach the ground, he's clearly already tied the rope to his belt quite tightly to ensure he doesn't fall. Yet when he gets to the ground, it's quite easy for him just to unravel it and walk away, which doesn't seem to match as such. We also note the sound of sirens when Bond is ready to leave uh, the banker's office. Now, you'll note that when the police arrive, the area of jurisdiction is actually for the Spanish National Police, But from their uh, uniforms and their regalia, it's actually the Basque region uh, that come along. Now, they wouldn't have any um, ability to to hold any jurisdiction there anyway. So there is a minor sort of uh, gaff in terms of continuity there. Moving further down the film, um, obviously, when Bond, uh, Valentine and Christmas Jones are in the caviar factory, we note that Bond is clearly holding his uh, Q-Branch P99 pistol and yells clearly to Valentine and Christmas to get out of the um, building before it collapses. Now, when they cut away to the helicopter, Bond can be seen to be shown holding a machine gun. But after another shot, he then goes back to his original pistol. Now, there was actually a major incident during filming in 1999 when one of the stuntmen was... Um, had suffered minor injuries, but when the boat, um, when it's due to to launch through the air past uh, the speedboat, it is meant to do the pirouette in midair, as we've seen before in The Man with the Golden Gun. Now, in one of these stunts, it 
actually went wrong and the boats landed upside down by accident. Um, so one of the stuntmen was, was suffered minor injuries in that. But again, there were a few sort of minor gaps within the, um, the opening sequences. So when they're going past the Millennium Dome, just before Bond jumps from the Q fishing boats to the balloon, you can see clearly that the canopy of the boat is still visible. But when Bond actually makes the jump, it's disappeared without anyone um, being able to explain it. So it's, it's kind of disappears in midair. Also, moving forward to later in the film, when uh, Bond is being restrained by uh, Electric King's notorious sort of S&M torture chair, we see that he's clearly sat, um, that his right hand becomes free um, to be able to release his neck restraints. But he never actually releases his left arm before he jumps away from the chair. So we never actually see him being able to to release that before he's um, able to go after King and try and um, restrain her. There are also a few factual errors to consider in the film. So when Bond and Christmas Jones are trying to defuse the so-called um, nuclear device that's in the tunnel, we clearly see that there's lighting gantries across the length of the tunnel. Um, in reality, these wouldn't be possible because obviously it's it's a fuel line, so nobody would be able to actually fit those and it would be at risk, a huge fire risk anyway. Robert King can't be that great an engineer because he's built an oil pipeline over a glacier. Um, and if the glacier moved, it would mean the pipeline would break within a year. So that means that the scene where Electra and Bond are trying to escape the um, the villains um, in the ski sequence, that wouldn't necessarily work because the pipeline would have collapsed. Thanks for those, Phil. So, I, I mean, uh, I don't know who found out about the police jurisdictions, but they got too much time on their hands. <laughs> was that you, Phil, or did you find that somewhere? I was about to ask how Phil knows so much about Spanish police districts. Kind of put, this was in my research. This wasn't me going out and, you know, ringing up the Spanish police and saying, is this factually accurate? I think, I think there must be somebody else with a background in uh, Spanish law enforcement who knows their, their jurisdictions. Isn't the biggest gaffe in the world is not enough? When when Valentin, after the caviar factory collapses, he has that line, doesn't it? The insurance company is never going to believe this. I think they will. You've got lots of evidence there. You've got the wreckage of several helicopters and all the rest of it. I mean, I, I think I think they'll believe him. They might. I mean, he was distracted on the job by the fact that Christmas Jones is literally there in, in the world's shortest cocktail dress. So, you know, maybe that's what he's fearful of, that... He wasn't uh, as on the ball as he should have been. I think he needs to like replace his security rather than congratulate them if they're just going to let any attractive woman on. Can't you just say hello like a normal person? So it's time for my new segment for Series 4, and it's called The Further Adventures Of. So I'll be taking you on a tour of the, uh, the cast of a previous Bond film, and we'll see what direction their careers and lives took after they appeared in Bond. Uh, so this time I'm going to focus my attention on the second and arguably best Bond film from Russia with Love. Um, so we'll start with the uh, the lead actress, Daniela Bianchi. She was only 21, of course, when she starred in From Russia with Love. So you would have thought that she had a, a long, illustrious career after that, but she was surprisingly short, actually. She just had a few acting credits in the 1960s, including the aforementioned Kid Brother <laughs> Go and watch that if you haven't. And in 1970, she retired from acting completely to marry a, a shipping magnate in Italy. We also have Lotte Lenya, uh, of course, Rosa Klebb, 
the dominating figure in the film. Uh, so she was known predominantly as a, as a singer, actually, and she starred in a few TV films after her appearance in From Russia With Love. Uh, but she was mainly known kind of in the early 20th century, in the 20s, 30s and 40s. Her voice was synonymous with the work of her two-time husband, not two-timing husband, two, she married him twice, Kurt Weill, um, the German-born American composer, and he wrote the Mac the Knife song, which she would then sing with Bond Connection Louis Armstrong in 1950. Although, interestingly, she did she was nominated for an Academy Award uh, a couple of years before the filming of From Russia With Love for uh, The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. And we also have a very famous actor, of course, Robert Archibald Shaw, he was kind of in the middle of his career in between. Uh, he started with The Cherry Orchard in 1947 and ended with uh, Avalanche Express in uh, 1979. So From Russia With Love was kind of in the middle. Uh, he was nominated for an Academy Award also after, slightly after From Russia With Love, his portrayal of Henry VIII uh, in the drama film A Man For All Seasons in 1966. In popular culture, he's... <laughs> more well-known as Quint from Jaws in 1975 and uh, and starred alongside the good Connery brother in 1975's uh, Robin and Marion. He was the, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham to Connery's Robin Hood, of course. <laughs> Pedro Armendariz, uh, as many Bond fans will know, he suffered great pain during the filming uh, From Russia With Love, uh, the cause later discovered to be neck cancer, and he sadly committed suicide very shortly after the filming in June 1963. So it was a sad ending for him. Um, he was only 51 years old. But on a slightly brighter note, of course, we do see his son, Armendaritz Jr., uh, his appearance as President Hector Lopez in License to Kill. And uh, similarly, Eunice Gason, she didn't she didn't commit suicide. She died at the ripe old age of 90 uh, a couple of years ago. But her child also appeared in a Bond film. Kate Gason was at the casino table in Goldeneye. And I probably should finish this segment with the the two gypsy girls, Eliza Gurr. She was apparently the roommate of Daniela Bianchi in the 1960 Miss Universe competition. So there's a connection there. Uh, she had a handful of film roles in the late 60s. And Martine Beswick, she was the other fighting gypsy woman in the film. She would later have a slightly larger role, of course, in Thunderball. She also starred in 1966's One Million Year BC with uh, Raquel Walsh. Uh, and she starred in several Hammer Studio horror films in the 1970s. Uh, in fact, she came back uh, from retirement in 2018 to star in a, another Hammer film, House of Gorgon, alongside uh, Caroline Monroe, Naomi from The Spy Who Loved Me. Uh, so yeah, From Russia With Love really paved the way to Hollywood for Martine, but perhaps most famously, she's known for appearing on season three, episode one of the excellent podcast, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole. Thanks a lot for that, Martin. Yeah, and of course, that great episode of MasterChef with all the other Bond women, uh, Martine Beswick as well. Uh, Robert Shaw was a fascinating actor. He was a real alpha male type. Like there's a long string of uh, wives and children, I think, that he left behind him and apparently ultra competitive. I saw Jaws again recently, and that's an extraordinary character performance. I mean, he goes full Ahab in that film. Shark your dead eyes, doll's eyes. I'll find him for five, but I'll kill him for ten. Answer my questions quietly, but clearly. 
And next up, it's over to you, the listeners. It's your segment, Q-Branch. where we hear some of your best Bond correspondents. Uh, so what do the Cubbies want to know this time, Phil? We did have a question on um, Twitter uh, a couple of weeks ago, which was, if we had to pick any Bond film as kind of a lazy Sunday or a, um, a bank holiday weekend kind of film that we just stick on, which one for us guys would we choose? Um, of course, for me, I've always kind of been very positive about A View to a Kill. That's my kind of go-to um, sort of lazy Bond film as such. You don't have to think. You don't have to pay too much attention to it. You can kind of just stick it on and enjoy it. What for you guys would be your kind of ultimate lazy Sunday Bond film? Well, I mean, I think the great appeal of the best Bond films is that they all sort of provide that. And that's I think that's where a lot of people who sort of take against the Craigiverse films sort of, I think that's one of their key complaints that you sort of can't watch them easily. I think for me at the moment, I'd be very keen just of a lazy Sunday to go back on the ones which I've historically not liked very much, but think that there might be more fun to them now if I went back. It's like a Diamonds Are Forever or a Moonraker, say. Uh, it has to be good for me as well. So I go I go Goldfinger and um, yeah, Goldfinger is an oldie and maybe Skyfall is a more recent Bond film, so... Yeah, I think you can, well, I mean, you mentioned that the Craig films are a bit more complicated, but I think you can still have Skyfall on in the background and uh, know generally what's happening. There's too much swearing in the Craig films, though, so you can't have them on at tea time, unfortunately. You've got all the M's dropping F-bombs across them. Well, it's kind of a similar problem with the Dalton films. They're so violent, you can only get a heavily edited version by the time you get to early afternoon if it's on ITV. Yeah, whenever Licence to Kill comes on in the afternoon and it's about half the length. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! So we've reached the final segment of the show, and that can only mean one thing. It is the quiz. Uh, Adam is already 1-0 up in his quest for more Cubby Cup glory. Uh, Can I draw level with him today? Probably not, but uh, never say never again, uh, especially when Phil is setting the questions. Uh, What have you got for us, Phil? Yes, and you might be surprised to hear that this time I've not gone down the route of cars or gadgets. I've decided that this time we're going to look at the drinks that Bond has often enjoyed in the films. So for this week's quiz, there's going to be a couple of questions each. I'm going to give you the name of a famous drink that's featured in a James Bond film. It may not necessarily be a cocktail. All you have to do is tell me either the main film it's appeared in or if it's been in more than one film, just give me one um example so we'll start with adam and martin you'll go second so adam the mint julep i believe bond and pussy galore and goldfinger are sipping on those at his kentucky stud farm while felix Leiter's gorging on kfc in goldfinger that is correct he does indeed consume that in goldfinger so adam takes the lead martin your first one the vesper we'd like to hope that is casino royale it is indeed, yes, of course, named after Vesper Lind. And it was originally taken from Ian Fleming's um, own recipe for um, a vodka martini. So you've drawn level. So, Adam, a bourbon whiskey. Is, uh, I don't know this actually, but I'll, I'll have to guess something like, this sounds like something Roger Moore would have ordered along the, the route of Live and Let Die in either New York or sort of Louisiana. So I'm going to have to guess that, but I'm not certain at all. Uh, it's not from my... So if you remember in GoldenEye, it's when M and Bond are together in the meeting room. M offers a 
glass of bourbon whiskey. So it's not, I'm afraid it's the answer I had was from Goldeneye. But Martin, it's your chance to take the lead. Your next one is a mojito. That inspired my own ordering of mojitos. So I do know this one. Uh, it's from Die Another Day. It is indeed. Martin takes the lead. Okay, Adam, yours is a whiskey and soda. You've helped me with the questions, Phil, because I wouldn't have got these. <laughs> yeah, bloody hell, Whis- whiskey and soda. Um, yeah, no idea. Let's let's say that Sean Connery has a whiskey and soda somewhere across Las Vegas in Diamonds Are Forever. You are correct, he does. It is one of his most popular picks um, across the films, but Diamonds Are Forever is probably the one that people remember most. So, Adam draws level. So, Martin, your next one is a Smirnoff vodka. Oh, I don't know this one, but I'll guess. Is it next to the Siamese vodka in You Only Live Twice? I don't know. That's my guess. It's not. No, it's. So, you could have had two options. Um, in fact, you could have had three. So, he first orders a vodka martini using Smirnoff in Goldfinger. That's when he's on Goldfinger's private jet. The next time we see Bond with a Smirnoff is in Tomorrow Never Dies. That's when he's taking the shots of vodka as he's waiting for Paris Carver. There is also a reference to it in No Time to Die as well when it's Bond's very final martini in the film. Uh, But unfortunately, no, there's no record of him having the same when he finds the Siamese vodka. It's all square coming down to the final question. So, Adam, your final drink of choice is a bottle of Heineken. This kicked up a stink at the time, and I believe he, he has his finger over it, doesn't he? And I think it was Skyfall he got into trouble for drinking Heineken. Yes, it was indeed. He's uh, in the bar. Um, so Adam takes the lead with that one. So Martin, a glass of Talisker whiskey. Uh, yeah, no idea on this one either. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, the living daylights. Oh, it's a bit too early. It was actually the Brosnan era. So he drinks it in The World Is Not Enough and in Die Another Day. So obviously when he's at the uh, Scottish Highland Lodge he enjoys a glass uh, and then again when he's doing the demonstration running die another day he has a glass with him when he um, is wearing the VR glasses um, so unfortunately Martin it's Adam's win again he just pictures the post it was a bit tricky though this week Martin will you be drowning any sorrows in in uh, a glass of Siamese vodka tonight or is, is it just the uh, just a soft drink and I'll have the Smirnoff vodka. That's the one I got wrong. <laughs> Adam, how about you? Are you going to be uh, toasting with a bottle of Bolly? Uh, I'm I'm one drink a night at the moment uh, for various reasons. So, yeah, probably just a, a pint of something, maybe some whiskey. So congratulations to Adam, who wins yet another quiz. He's 2-0 up already for uh, the fourth series of the Cubby Cup. Uh, so we come to the end of this episode. Thanks very much, as ever, for joining us here in the Cubby Hole. And thanks again for helping us decide on our Bond actor, Henry Cavill, and our Bond director, Martin Campbell, again, uh, as we map out Bond 26. Uh, so do let us know your thoughts on our plans for the pre-title sequences as well before our next episode. So until then, I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. Hope you enjoyed the show. Good night. Winning combination on the Jalili. Good quiz show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you just suddenly went David Brent then. <laughs> Tenable Warwick Davies. <laughs>
Chaucer. Uh, my brain was just linking things. Shakespeare. <laughs> it's because they have it on Hong Kong TV. <laughs> I was going to say, how have you even seen winning combination? That can't possibly have been yeah. exported, but it has. Yeah, it has. If, will you get yeah. to? Well, does that mean you'll get Deal or No Deal when it comes back with uh, Stephen Mulhern? Oh, it's coming back, is it? A work colleague uh, said the best one about that. Apparently someone reacted to the No Deal news on Twitter and said, um, I'm sure Mulhern will be good, but he'll just lack the sort of end of days Jonestown massacre vibe that Noel Edmonds brought to it. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, East Wing. Hello, West Wing. Hello, Pilgrims. Oh, it's the death box. But it was also the fact it was a game of luck and chance where it was like, right, we've got a system got a system let's stick to the system we don't want a red it's like we... it, it it was the easiest show to explain um since uh john virgo's big break days wasn't it put as many balls as you can 